Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In order to thrive in a world that's constantly in flux, you have to learn to overcome your fear of the unknown and adapt yourself to whatever circumstance you find yourself in. Zombies in Minecraft can teach you how to do both. Today on the show, I talk to Max Brooks, son of famed filmmaker Mel Brooks, who is the author of books that include World War Z and a series of Minecraft novels for kids. Max and I discuss how he's used his fiction to explore learning to be resilient in the face of change and how his work writing about the zombie apocalypse led to a gig at the Modern War Institute at West Point. Along the way, Max offers insights on overcoming your fear of the unknown and how Minecraft can help your kids learn how to thrive in a world where becoming a creative problem solver is the name of the game. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash maxbrooks. All right, Max Brooks, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. So you've had a really interesting career as a writer. I know a lot of our listeners have read your books. You famously wrote The Zombie Survival Guide and then later World War Z, which got turned into that Brad Pitt movie. And that led to an opportunity to serve as a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. And then uh, you've written some other fiction. You did something about the Harlem Hellfighters of World War One. And then you've also been doing a series of books based on Minecraft, books for kids. And I got to say, my 10-year-old daughter, Scout, she, she's a big Minecraft fan. She plays the game. She also reads the books. And I told her that I was interviewing Max Brooks. She said, well, let him know that Max Brooks writes the best Minecraft books. Um, <laughs> That's so. awesome. So a big endorsement there from Scout McKay, age 10 of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I want to talk about your writing career more because I think your career as a writer tracks a theme that you see throughout your work, and that is adaptability and navigating new changes in your environment. Let's talk about your zombie writing. What got you writing about zombies back in the early 2000s? Like, What were you hoping to explore with writing about a zombie apocalypse? Well, actually, it was just fear, really. I mean, it's it's just to be brutally honest, when I was about 12 or 13, I used to sneak into my parents' room because they had cable when they'd go out to dinner. And I found myself watching an Italian cannibal zombie movie, and it was really brutal. And it scared the just the living hell out of me. And 
for years, I thought, oh my God, what would I do if there were really zombies? And then in the 90s, Y2K was coming around. For your younger listeners who don't remember, it was this mass panic that on New Year's Eve, year 2000, all the computers were going to reset, bank records would disappear, nuclear missiles would launch and land on the farms, and people really started thinking about survival. And so I thought, well, what, what would happen if it was a zombie apocalypse? Now, I should say that in the interim, I had seen a movie that gave me hope, and it was Night of the Living Dead, because suddenly there were rules. There actually was a way to survive. It wasn't that sort of dark Euro feeling of like you're just doomed. It was an American ideal, which is, yes, you can have a happy ending if you know what you're doing. And so I really started to think about it. And then I saw Dawn of the Dead in graduate school, and I really started thinking about it. So by the time Y2K came around, I thought as a, as a pure exercise, just for me, I'm going to take a few hours every day, every night, and then just write a guidebook on how to survive a zombie attack. And that's where it came from. And it sat in a drawer for years. And then when I was on Saturday Night Live, I met this book agent who thought he could get me a book deal. And it got published, marketed absolutely wrong completely wrong because they tried to portray it as making fun of zombies, a a zombie joke book written by Mel Brooks Jr. That's how they tried to portray it. And I warned them. I said, it's going to be a disaster because people expecting jokes are not going to get it. And my tribe, the, the horror nerds who I am of and who don't know me yet are going to think that Mel Brooks's Hollywood Brad is taking a giant dump on everything that they love. And that's exactly what happened. Mainstream media hated it. Horror nerds hated it. And thank God I was married to the best woman ever who said, you need to throw that marketing plan out and market it yourself. So I went to Fangoria on my knees, begged for an interview. Let me introduce myself to you. And slowly but surely, I established my street cred as a zombie nerd. And that eventually led to World War Z as kind of the follow-up to, is you're kind of putting the things you wrote about in Zombie Survival Guide and playing it out like wargaming it. Well, yeah, because, well, because Zombie Survival Guide was all about how an individual or a small group would survive. And I took it to the next level in World War Z because as a lover of zombie stories, I realized that every, almost every zombie story I've seen is about small groups. But it didn't answer a big question I had, which is what about countries? How would governments survive? How would big systems survive? International trade, international relations. How would we as a species survive a zombie plague because zombie plagues are big? And there was no book out there for me. So I thought I'd write it myself. And one of my favorite books growing up was The Good War by Studs Terkel. It's an interview with survivors, participants in World War II. I had listened to it. My mother gave me the audiobook because I'm very dyslexic. And I always loved it. And I thought, that's my template. I'm going to do a book, interviews with survivors. And that's the best way to try to tell this giant global story of a zombie outbreak. What do you think was going on in the zeitgeist in the, you know, the 2000s where people were really into zombies? And we even, we've, I remember doing some content on the website, you know, zombie-themed content. What do you think was going on? Why did zombies have a moment during that period? No idea. I, you know, if I was good at understanding the marketplace, they probably wouldn't have fired me off Saturday Night Live. 
I don't know how to write for an audience. I don't know how to judge trends. I really, I just don't know. All I can do is, is write for me. And this is what was important to me at the time. And I guess I just got lucky that what was important to me happened to be important to other people. And how did uh, writing about zombies lead to a position as a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point? That seems quite the leap. Well, for me, what happened was when I wrote these books, I wanted to make them as real as possible. I'm a, a huge Tom Clancy fan. I grew up loving his stuff. And I love that he took this sort of Ian Fleming, pseudo macho male psychosexual fantasy of James Bond and just threw it away and said, how do real spies act? How do real submarines work? As a giant nerd and wannabe, he decided to educate his readers as well as entertain them. And I realized that's what I want to be too. So like Zombie Survival Guide, if you take away the zombies, it is a disaster prep manual. Everything in it's 100% real. From dehydration to clean socks to breaking in your shoes to which guns are going to jam the most, it's all real. I did, I did a, just a ton of homework. Same thing with World War Z. I studied how systems work, how countries work. So what happened was I got a call after the book came out from Admiral Wisecup at the United States Naval War College, and he invited me to come and speak to the students. And I said, are you sure you have the right guy? And he said, yeah, no, 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 we got the right guy. I love World War Z, and if you take out the zombies, you have written a credible scenario of how our planet would respond to a global catastrophe. And I want you to come speak about how systems are interlinked and how they can collapse. And I did, and I must have said something right, although it doesn't seem that way. I think the YouTube video is still out there, and I'm just flop sweating like Albert Brooks in broadcast news and saying something like, are you sure there, the orders didn't get mixed up? There isn't like a lieutenant commander, Max Brooks, wandering around Comic-Con? But I must have said something right because then I was invited to come back. And then I was invited to speak at other military forums. And then I was invited to be a, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security to study global crises. And then I was invited to speak at a listening tour at the Pentagon. This is where generals come around and they they, tr they try to be open to new ideas. So like right before me, Sebastian Younger came up and spoke about what is facing the average infantryman in Afghanistan. And I got up and I spoke about how the American public is 100% divorced from the global war on terror. I said, if you're just going on pop culture references, 9-11 never happened. And you need to reintroduce the American people to those who protect them because this sheep and sheepdog model is not working and it's not sustainable. And there was a young Captain John Spencer in the back of the room, just got back from Iraq. And he said to me, listen, we're, we're starting up a brand new think tank called the Modern War Institute. We are going to study how we fight each other and no ideas are off the table. And we'd love you to come in as a fellow and bring your perspective. And that's how I got into the MWI. And, and so what are you doing there? Like what kind of research and writing are you doing for the think tank? I study crises that are non-kinetic at the moment. When I say non-kinetic, I mean crises that will eventually lead to shooting if they're left unattended. Like, perfect example, one of the articles I wrote for the Modern War Institute was about food insecurity. Because the United States is the only great power in world history 
that has never been vulnerable to food blackmail. All the other great powers, Russia, Britain, ancient Rome, Japan, you name it, somebody has held a gun to their head and said, I'm going to cut off your food supply if you don't comply. But not us. Even in the darkest days of our civil war, we were still growing enough surplus wheat to sell to Great Britain for, for profits. All that changed with Monsanto because Monsanto has patented their seeds as if it were intellectual property. And so then if a farmer grows a field of wheat for Monsanto and then takes a little piece of those seeds that harvest later and banks them and then replants them the next year, he goes to jail for copyright infringement, the same way you're copying a, a, a DVD. So Monsanto established that precedent which means that now for the first time since the birth of the agricultural revolution, farmers are not allowed to bank their seeds anymore. And for a company that basically has, I, don't know, I think at the time it was something like 90% of our soybeans, 80% of our corn, that's huge. And if that's not bad enough, Monsanto was sold to Bayer, German company. Now we have a security treaty with them. They're our friends, they're our allies. But there was nothing in the bill of sale that would stop Bayer from selling Monsanto, say, to China. And if that ever happened, you can see a scenario where China's ready to invade Taiwan and times it at planting season and makes a call to the president of the U.S. and says, listen, you better back the hell off or we are going to withhold our seeds. And maybe you won't starve, but the panic that will ensue and the riots and the looting and the death will be a hell of a lot worse than anything our army could ever do to you. We have the potential to kill more Americans than if we actually went to war with you. That's crazy. So, I mean, it sounds like the Modern War Institute is using your talent as a fiction writer where you can think about a plot line from a single point and seeing where that can carry out and helping them figure out what are some potential scenarios. Yeah, that's what I do is I, I take my imagination as, as a novelist and look at the real situation. And also the kind of novels I write always go just below the surface. Like with zombies, I write about the fact that most people wouldn't really die in a zombie apocalypse from zombies. They would die from second and third order effects like dehydration, malnutrition, infection. It's the same thing in national security. Like when I wrote about uh, cybersecurity, my research showed me that we actually have the technology to ward off any kind of cyber attack from any enemy. The problem is we don't have a doctrine. We don't have a strategy in how to use it. There's literally no master plan for how to protect us from the great hack. And our enemies know that. They have plans. They have doctrine. They've been working on it actually since Desert Storm on how to hurt us. But imagine if you had a bunch of warships, but no plan on how to use them, which has actually happened in history. So that's kind of the, what I do. And then how did you make the connection with Minecraft? Like, how did that collaboration happen? When I first saw my, my son, he's 18 now, but when he was a little boy, he was about eight maybe, playing Minecraft, and I played it with him, I realized this had the potential to be possibly, and I'm not exaggerating, possibly the greatest teaching tool since the printing press. And that is because you and me and everyone on this planet has been trained in the industrial model of education. And that model of education was designed to help human beings thrive in the industrial revolution. This new crazy business model in the 18th century of breaking down labor 
into an assembly line. Instead of one person making a shoe, it's 10 people making a part of the shoe. And whoever could master that could master the world. So it became about memorization, regurgitation, standardization as the clock is ticking. And it worked. In fact, it worked so well that Japan mastered it and then ate us for breakfast in the 1980s. The problem is the industrial revolution is in the rearview mirror now and the workforce has changed. And so today's kids have to learn a whole new skill set. They've got to be innovators. They've got to be resilient. They've got to be fluid problem solvers. And our method of education teaches them exactly the opposite. So what the hell do you do? And watching my son play this video game, I realized, wow, this game, if curated correctly, can teach kids everything their brain needs to know about how to become resilient, creative problem solvers. No, I would agree. So, you know, my daughter, she loves to play Minecraft. And I'm always impressed because I'll check in on her. Like, hey, so what are you doing in Minecraft? And then she'll show me the stuff she's made. Uh, and what's crazy about Minecraft, the way it's formatted, it's it's an open world. You can do whatever you want in it. And I'm always impressed with these like crazy contraptions she makes with all the... I guess it's redstone is what it is. And then you can make like- Oh these, yeah, redstone. Yeah, redstone's like this magic stone where you can basically make machines inside. So she's made like roller coasters. She's made these elaborate mazes with secret doors. If you light a torch, it'll set off this chain reaction that will, and I'm like, this is crazy. I mean, I, you know, growing up, my video game was like Super Mario Brothers where it was just a right. line. That was it. It's it's completely different gaming experience from other video games. Oh, exactly. Like imagine if you played Call of Duty But the best way to take out the enemy team was to have an authoritarian government on your side that then has very cheap labor that then entices the other team's government to outsource their manufacturing base to your side so your side makes their bullets and then withholds the bullets when the shooting starts, Yeah, right? That's literally how China is eating us for lunch. But there's no video game out there, certainly not a game like Call of Duty that could do that. Whereas Minecraft, you actually can. Whereas in Minecraft, you are given hard and fast rules, especially if you play like on survival, like you're going to starve or the the sun is going to go down and the monsters are going to come out. You're going to die. So you do have hard and fast goals like shelter and food, but how you accomplish those goals, totally up to you. Oh yeah. Uh, Minecraft also has zombies, right? Those are the monsters, right? Minecraft has zombies. All right. There's the other connection. Thanks, Mojang. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to dig deeper into some of the themes you write about in all of your work. And a big one is how we respond to this state of uncertainty that comes with dramatic change. And you see this in the, uh, the Minecraft books. I read the Island, the intro to the Island's awesome. This character is put in this completely foreign situation. He's trying to figure out what's going on. You see this in World War Z. So what's the typical response, human response to dramatic change? Initially, there is there is shock and paralysis. Sometimes there's denial. It really depends on your personality type. Some people simply cannot accept the world has changed and is doing everything possible to get back to where they were. There's a frustration anger, tantrums, bargaining. There's so many different stages of dealing with crisis and there's no one size fits all. Like I said, it it depends on who you are and how you deal. But that's always what I study because my life has always been constant change. And I think maybe growing up with dyslexia, 
I never got a chance to just cruise through life. I think a lot of times it depends on who you are and how you struggled in your formative years to how you deal with crisis when you're a grown-up. Right. People have talked about whenever we experience a disruption in our environment, there's either the fight, flight, or freeze response. And a lot of times people think it's either fight or flight, but I think a lot of times people just freeze. I mean, you've probably, you've, people have probably seen videos where something crazy happens, right? A car goes through a, a storefront. And it's funny that the amount of people you see just sit there watching, they, their brain can't compute what is going on. And it, it's, oh, yeah. it takes like a minute or two for them to finally figure out, oh my gosh, something really bad's happened. I got to do something. Yeah. One, one of the fellows at the Bonner War Institute, combat veteran of Iraq, multiple tours, he once told me apparently everybody freezes, but it's a question of for how long do you freeze? Because some people freeze for a nanosecond. So that way it doesn't look like they freeze. But some people freeze for a really long time. I mean, Joseph Stalin totally locked up for hours and hours when Hitler attacked, when they were like, Comrade Stalin, the Nazis are coming. And he's like, no, no, Hitler would never do that to me. We're friends. We signed in a you know, non-aggression pact. General MacArthur totally froze right after Pearl Harbor for a day. He was commander of U.S. forces in the Philippines. He'd heard about Pearl Harbor and didn't spring into action and didn't ready our forces. So literally the next day when the Japanese attacked the Philippines, they pulled another Pearl Harbor. Well, I mean, how do we overcome that tendency to freeze when we experience a big shift in life? Have you uncovered anything in your own life or observing and studying war? Yeah, I think that from what I have seen is that we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, the, the sooner the better, we have to train ourselves to always be doing uncomfortable things, trying new things. You know that feeling you had like your first day at a new school when you were a little kid? It's the worst feeling in the world, right? Absolute worst feeling. Likewise, your best feeling for a lot of us is like second semester senior year in high school when you know everything. Now, I've always believed in, I've always seen is that that feeling of your first day as a little kid in a new school is actually when you're at your best, is when you're at your most nimble and you're most willing to try something new and you're at your worst when you're a high school senior. And so it's not too complicated to describe. It's just for me, I've always found that when I have that feeling in my gut of being feeling small and scared and angry, that's when I'm at my best because it means I'm over my head and I'm trying something new and I'm growing. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. 
Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, and another thing you talk about in your work is that this unwillingness to recognize or accept the change that's happening, this can bite you in the butt, not only in a survival situation, but it can bite you in the butt in your career, right? Like you may be in an industry that's changing. Like you're used to it being a certain way because you got started 20 years ago, but now thanks to the internet, it's changing. You think, well you know, maybe this change isn't going anywhere. It's just a fad. And then 10 years later, you're out of a job because that fad that you 
thought was a fad just ate your lunch. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, who invented the digital camera? Kodak. They had the first patent. They could have ruled the market in digital cameras, but they're a film company. And they said, oh, no, no, that's just not the way it's going to be. You see it. I mean, Blockbuster should have devoured Netflix when they had they were holding all the cards and Netflix was this you know dumpy little startup they didn't they're like we are a video cassette rental company that's what we do we have brick and mortar stores so they were not nimble i mean you see it all the time i mean this is one of the things i write about constantly in all my think tanks is how desert storm was the absolute worst war america ever fought not vietnam not iraq and afghanistan desert storm because we were at our best and we thought we were showing the world deterrence. We thought we were like, if you mess with the USA, we are going to atomize you on the battlefield. We didn't realize our enemies thought, oh, well, if you're going to mess with America, don't go anywhere near the battlefield. Don't hit them where they're strongest. So they've spent a whole generation developing asymmetric warfare, you know, cyber, economics, uh, information ops, terrorism, proxy war, all these things. And now we are really playing catch up. Yeah, one of uh, my favorite writers who also writes about the theme of change is Jack London. And one of my favorite short stories he wrote is In a Far Country. And it's got this awesome intro. I'll link to it. But basically, it's just Jack London starts off this soliloquy about if you go off into a far country, which for him was like the great north, the Alaskan wilderness, is that you have to change. And if you don't adapt to the circumstances you find yourself in, you will die. Yeah. And the whole story is basically after that, it's recounting these three individuals who weren't willing to adapt to the environment they found themselves in. And they all ended up dying in this cabin of scurvy and freezing to death. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, this, this notion of change. And, and I say this as someone who hates change. I absolutely despise it. I love the way things just are. So I get it when people are like, I really don't want to change. I'm not comfortable. I'm like, I hear you. But unfortunately, you have to. And you can see it through time. I mean, I'm very lucky that as a Gen Xer, I was raised by greatest generation parents who did not ask to have to adapt and did not ask to have to be more than themselves. It was forced upon them, but they did, you know. You look at my dad and all his friends, these nebbishy guys. Hey, how you doing? You want a little nosh? These are not the guys you would think to crawl through snow diffusing German S-mines or hunting U-boats in the North Atlantic or being shot down over Regensburg on a B-17 bombing run. But they did it because they had to. Right. And I think it gets harder to change as you get older. I'm in, you know, I'm in midlife. And I think, man, like I've spent, 20 years developing a skill set. Now you're saying I got to develop another skill set? I don't oh, want to yeah. have to do that, you know, but you got to. Yeah, no, the, the funny thing is the toughest guy I'm friends with, you would not think so. He is the dorkiest dude you've ever seen. And yet he has had to change, he's changed careers three times. He's about my age. He got to start in magazines. Magazines completely just, cratered when the internet came. And he was like, well, I'm just going to have to reinvent myself. So he did. And he went and did something else. And then that whole business went away. And now he's doing something else. And then that looks like it's going away. And he doesn't whine. He's like, oh, what's my path, my life, my career? He goes, ah, 
I got to go back to the drawing board because his family needs to eat. So he is the manliest guy I know. Right. Adaptable. I love it. So, you know, fear is another response we have to change. And you talked about the very beginning of this episode, you started writing about zombies because you wanted to explore fear. What have you learned about managing fear from writing about zombies? You know, the the strange thing is I, (laughs) there's a lot of misconceptions about sort of what I do and how, and, and how I am as a person, because people say to me like, well, we write about all this stuff. Aren't you worried you're going to scare people? To which I say, no, no, you don't understand. I'm already scared. And the studying of the threat calms me down. It's like the first two acts of Jaws for me are the scariest because I don't know what's out there. It's this nebulous thing in the darkness and the depths, and I just don't know what it is. Oh, my God. But that moment, you know, in the when you're looking in the top-down shot on the orca and you actually see the shark for the first time, then I was like, oh, okay. Now I know what I'm dealing with. So for me, the best way to deal with a fear is to study what you're afraid of and figure out where the nose and the tail is and how, how heavy it is and what it does. Because then you, then you actually have something tangible as opposed to the worst thing, which is your own imagination. Well, in an interview you did, it was with Hawkeye. It was with Alan Alda. Um, you talked yeah, about- Yeah, my mentor. Yeah, you, you talked my about mentor. your mother- taught you about investigating and researching as a way to overcome fear? What did your mother teach you about overcoming fear? Well, my mother, I mean, my mother is the reason I am who I am. There's just no way around. I, I, I was deeply privileged to have the best mom ever because she was a thinker and an explorer. And so she always taught me, if you're afraid of something, figure out exactly what it is you're afraid of. And she, I watched her do this. When I was a kid in my 20s working for the BBC in Africa, my mother was terrified. She bought herself a map of Africa and studied the geography of it. So that way, whenever there was a headline, you know, violence in Mogadishu or there's Ebola in Zaire or the Rwanda genocide, my mother knew exactly where Rwanda and Zaire and Somalia were as opposed to where I was. And that calmed her down. So I got to watch her do that. And that's always set me on on my course to if there's a threat out there, if there's something I'm really scared of, something in the news, well, study it, figure it out. Has writing about the survival stuff, has it nudged you to learn some survival skills yourself? Like how to start a fire without matches and how to filter water and things like that? (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it's funny. I've become friends with Les Stroud. Oh yeah, we've had Les Stroud on the podcast. Isn't he awesome? I mean- Less is the real deal, man. Less, like, that, that's the good part about growing up in show business is I can spot bullshit a mile away. So when I see some of the other survivalist reality shows, I'm like, oh, you're a total fraud. Whereas Less, what I love about Less is he's not afraid to fail on his own show. Remember on, on episodes of Survivor Man, I would say at least a third of the time, he'll try something and be like, no, this is too hard. I'm going to get killed. I can't do this. I have to retreat, which then validates when his he succeeds. And so I've always been a devotee and studying him, I've learned how to start. I don't know how to start a fire with two sticks, but I can do flint and steel and char cloth, purifying water, big deal. Because I, also I live in Southern California and back to talking about my mom, my mom was a survivalist. 
it wasn't called survivalism back then. It was called just being ready for an earthquake. So we always had a survival kit. We always had a survival plan. You know, if there's an earthquake, where do we meet? We had basic skills on how to disinfect a wound, on what to eat and what not to eat. So my mom always knew that stuff. And to us now, we call it prepping. You're a prepper. But the truth is, it's literally just how poor people used to grow up in the Great Depression. And she was a depression kid. Right. Let's talk about the, the Minecraft books. I really enjoy these. What I like about them is, one, I got to like, you know, it's something I can share with my daughter, right, and talk to her about. That has been fun. But also, they're fun to read. And what you do with them is with each chapter, there's a lesson that you're trying to explore about how to deal with change and how to deal with uncertainty. And one of the big themes in The Island, which is the first one, is learning from your mistakes. Because in a survival situation, you're in a new situation, you're going to make mistakes. You don't know what you're doing. But mistakes in a survival situation can get you killed. So how do you make sure when you're put in this new situation of uncertainty that you don't make a mistake that will kill you or, you know, make things worse? Well, I think in a life or death situation, you have to be very cautious, obviously. You know, one of the greatest sci-fi novels ever written for me was A Tunnel in the Sky by Robert Heinlein. And it's in the future where kids have to go on a survival test to alien planets. And the theme of it is don't be a tiger, be a cockroach. So don't try to be all macho and cool and I'm going to dominate, man. No, no, no. You have to accept your natural place in the food chain and be a quiet looker and listener. So in situations like that, in, in life or death, no, no, no. You do not stride boldly into the light because that's where the saber-toothed cat is waiting for you. But in any other non-life or death situation, you have to take risks. You have to fall on your ass. You have to be humiliated and fail miserably. You know, millennials used to have that phrase, epic fail, as in like, well, I'm never going to have an epic fail. Well, then you're never going to live your life. You have to be in situations where you will fail miserably and spectacularly and then learn to recover because that's the only way you're going to move forward. Uh, how have you learned to not beat yourself up? over your mistakes that you've made in your career? Oh, I am still learning. <laughs> I, because I know that that even though I'm sitting here in the attic recording this, if I were to say, oh, well, I've, I've learned how to do this, somewhere, telepathically, my wife would roll her eyes. So yeah, I beat up on myself a lot. I've always said that the only criticism of my books that hurt the worst are the ones where I agree with it. Because mm -hmm. I get a lot of criticism and I'm like, yeah, whatever. But sometimes if I agree with a specific one, I'm like, oh, God damn it, they're right. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I beat up on myself a lot. And because remember, the lessons of the island that I put in for, I always say Jack Black because he read the audiobook. <laughs> the lesson for this character are lessons that I'm still learning. I am not this, this wise sage sitting on a rock saying, oh, look at all the things I've mastered. I ain't mastered nothing. These are the things that I know are right and I'm working towards. Will I ever master them? Who knows? Yeah, I love that at the end of the book, you lay out all the rules. They're good stuff for like anyone to know, but I'm glad that my daughter's reading this stuff. Like, you know, keep going, never give up, panic drowns thought, don't assume anything, fear can be conquered, anxiety must be endured, 
when the world changes, you've got to change with it. So it's great stuff. And then in the second book, The Mountain, so the, the island, for those who don't know, this is like a sole character who finds himself on a, the Minecraft island. And he's just bewildered. I, the opening line is like, why is the sun square? Why are my hands rectangles? What's going on? And then it's his journey of, it, of learning how to survive on the, the island. And then the second one, The Mountain, this is where he gets a friend. And then you bring in the social element of survival. And I think that's where you shine with your work with like World War Z is exploring the social factor when it comes to survival and a disastrous situation. How important is the social factor in surviving? It is incredibly important. And let's clarify, I say this as someone who is anti-social. Right. I, I am an anti-social recluse only child, grew up in my room, would be very happy if I didn't have to deal with people you know, that, that moment in Castaway where Tom Hanks looks at the island and it's just him, I was like, oh, awesome. But I know that is not how we survive. First of all, it starts with our basic evolution, which my mother was really fascinated by and would read to me books about primitive humans. We're in the middle of the food chain. We are not tigers. We are apes. Apes are in the middle of the food chain. And the only way we were able to thrive was to work together. And that has not changed. That's why in the mountain, I have the lesson that friendship is a survival skill, right? It's not just about like, hey, dude, you're really cool. Let's hang out. It's like, no, we need each other always. And one of my favorite movies is Jeremiah Johnson, Robert Redford. And you can be seen as sort of man on his own, man against the world, man by himself, which is bullshit. Because in the movie, he learns from other trappers when he's coming up who teach him how to survive. And we all need that, whether you are a parent or whether you are in a job or you're in the army. You know, I, as a novelist, it looks like a solitary profession, but it is not. I have an amazing editor and I have a great team over at my publisher and every day I get up when I'm researching a book and I talk to experts who help me out and I bounce ideas off my wife who says, oh, you could do better with that or no, you're on the right track. So you're never alone and you got to embrace that. It's great to be an individual and you should be, but you have to know the limits of your individuality and be man enough to admit when you need help. Right. Yeah. There's this idea of the lone wolf if there's a lone wolf, he got kicked out of the pack because he, right. he was annoying. <laughs> and he's going to die. And he's going to die, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things I also hate about so many post-apocalyptic stories is this notion of like the lone badass, you know, just, just taking names and laying down the law. And anybody who really believes that in a zombie apocalypse, they're going to be the lone badass I invite them to look at the average age of your local Somali warlord and see how long they live. Because if you want a zombie apocalypse, look at a failed state. You don't see a lot of 80-year-old Somali warlords. So you got another Minecraft book coming out, The Village. What are you exploring in this one? It seems like things are getting even more complex. Oh yeah, this is the natural progression because obviously book one, you have to learn to live with yourself, figure yourself out. Book two, you got to learn to be a good friend, how to compromise and, you know, how to communicate and don't lose all of yourself, but how much of yourself you got to give to, you know, work with somebody else. 
Book three is the village where they come to a village and they learn how to be citizens in a community. And that is so important right now because I see it all around me. I see it in think tank world. I see it as a parent. I see it when I turn on CNN. We are in a national crisis where we have forgotten what it means to be a citizen. We are all out for ourselves and we are on the road to ruin. And so I am trying to impart all the civics lessons that should be taught in schools about how to be a voter, how to be a customer, how to live in a village with other people, which are all really critical. Because And Minecraft, if looked at from the right lens, teaches you all those lessons. So like, what is the marketplace and capitalism and, and why is money good and how could money be bad and what is crime and punishment and why we need cops? Why do we vote? No, yeah, there's some great stuff in here. You talk about economics, so one of them is talking about specialization moves everyone forward. It's not the money that's evil, it's what people might do with it. You got to understand supply and demand. And what's interesting, like, Mike, yeah, you, you learn this when you play Minecraft. It's been interesting to see how my kids, they learn how to, there's like a, there's a business that goes on there. You can trade with other people to get things that you need. And then also you have to deal with crime and punishment. You can steal from other people in the, the realms and you have to figure out how to deal with that. So yeah, I think it's a fun game and it's a fun series of books. And I'm, it's really cool what you've done with it. Where can people go to learn more about the new book and the rest of your work? You know, just you follow me on X and my website, maxbrooks.com. And I mean, I sound like a, a 1980s commercial that I grew up in. Wherever books are sold, but you know, <laughs> wherever books are sold, you're probably going to see the Minecraft books and maybe hopefully something else with my name on it. Fantastic. Well, Max Brooks, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Max Brooks. He's the author of several books, including World War Z and the recent Minecraft series. They're all available on amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, maxbrooks.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash maxbrooks, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com, where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to not listen to AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.